Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host, and in many ways, I hope you're a co-adventurer as we explore the interface and interconnection of the library's collections with the larger world as they relate to the history of Mary Baker Eddy and the Christian science movement. One of my great and continual discoveries in this process is how much I owe to the work of archivists at our institution, which has led to a growing appreciation of all that goes into the education and professional development of an archivist. I've come to see that we cannot have good history without good archivists. They make exploration into the primary historical record not only possible, but responsible. So, I'm so pleased to have with me today two wonderful representatives of the archival profession to discuss what goes into the making of a great archivist. With me is Sarah Sheldy, Associate Archivist at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Jonathan. It's great to be back on Seekers and Scholars. (laughs) It's always wonderful to have you. And we're so pleased also to have Dr. Kathy Wisser from the Simmons University School of Library and Information Science where she is Associate Professor, Director of the Archives Concentration, and Co-Director of the Dual Degree Archives and History Program. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to have you, Kathy. It's a great privilege for us. So, in the interest of full disclosure, I should state that Sarah received her Dual Degree in Archives and History from Simmons, where Dr. Wisser was her advisor. So, it's been great to bring about this reunion for a discussion on archival education and its application at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. So Sarah, I thought I'd start with you. What drew you to being an archivist and someone who works with special collections? So I've always been drawn to history. And so I would say that I came to archives through my love of history. I've always loved all kinds of ways to learn about history. But I noticed my classmates in elementary and high school, they came more alive when they saw history in person. So I wanted to find a way that I could bring my love of history to other people and to make it more exciting and tangible. And so in high school and starting in undergrad, I worked in a public library and a museum, but I also started doing archival internships. And that became what I thought as the ideal environment for me. During your education at Simmons and then the different internships and things that sort of set you up to begin what so far has been your career at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, what were sort of significant touchstones for you during that experience that you kind of draw on as you go about your work at the library? So I was drawn to Simmons in particular because of the strength of their archives program and this dual degree program that you mentioned, which I was involved with. There I learned so much, not just about archives and history and the intersections of those works, especially uh, in things like collective memory, but I also learned about the services that archives provide towards making things equitable in access and use. And that really drew me more to doing the work and making me more passionate about the work that I was doing. It taught me the important responsibilities that an archivist has for making judgments, and also just kind of shepherding people in archival access. That's great. So, Kathy, hearing a little bit, and and you probably already knew this, of Sarah's story, what comes to your mind in terms of the people that are drawn to the archival profession? What kinds of qualities 
do they bring to it when they show up at your door uh, remotely or, or in person to begin their education at Simmons? Are there sort of qualities in common that they seem to have? I really discovered there are three main streams of qualities, um, and I've discovered them in myself as well as in the students that I've worked with and the archivists that I've worked with in the past. There's a stream that goes along with what Sarah was referring to, that love of history, the love of telling stories, revealing stories, and uh, stories of all kinds, and, and looking for the new stories out there. Uh, but there's two other components that I think are equally important to archivists, and that would be transparency and accountability, social justice desires in that way. Um, but then there's also just making order out of chaos, right? Mm-hmm. So looking at materials and trying to make sense of them in a way that would make sense for researchers. I think that all three of these qualities are in every archivist, um, right. but usually it's one of those things that really drives a student to pursue an, an archival career. Right. And and how long is the program actually at, at Simmons? I know there are different ones. How much time does somebody put in to their advanced education to become an archivist? Well, it really depends on what pace a student wants to take the program in. There isn't one right way to do it. So we have students that are doing it very part-time, taking one course a semester and doing things over the summer. And then we have students who go full-time. It is a 12-course degree. Uh, The dual degree is slightly different, but the regular master's is a 12-course degree. And a full-time student is recommended to take three courses a semester. So if you were just taking courses fall, spring, it would be a two-year program. What are things that you want to be absolutely sure across you know, all the different kinds of programs and concentrations that people have at Simmons School of Library and Information Science, what are those core values and aspects of their formation that you want to be absolutely sure are deeply embedded in them before they go out and become archivists in the real world? That's a great question, Um, and I think that you would get slightly different answers from all of my colleagues Mm -hmm. uh, as we think about what is core to library and information science. I think that the service aspect is is a very important component to it, and in that context, equity aspects, diversity and inclusion are super important, really thinking about who you're serving and how best to serve them. But then there's also the other side of the coin, which is understanding the responsibilities around the information that you're responsible for um, and how to best make that connection between those that you're serving and the materials, information, resources. Library and information science is really about information, people, and technology, and technology broadly thought of, and how those things interact and work together to achieve the goals that that you want to achieve. I think that service and resource and kind of making things happen in that in-between space is what is core to library and information science, certainly what is core to archives, the level of responsibility that we have to maintain and preserve and ensure going forward that those intersections can happen as well. Yeah, so Sarah, you're just finished, and you're you're this finely minted product of the Simmons program in library and information science, and you're beginning your career, and you come to the the Mary Baker Eddy Library. 
What were your first thoughts about how your education at Simmons was setting you up to take on the, the roles that were being assigned to you? So the first thing I would say is kind of there was the theoretical aspects of equity and access and diversity and inclusion, those core concepts that I learned, they really helped shape me as a person and as an archivist, but also there were the practical aspects. And Simmons has this great built-in archives internships. Uh, I had two of them, and they helped me gain experience, which I could use in applying for jobs. Simmons has a great job line blog, and that is where I found the position for an archival processing assistant at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, which is how I started. And so I started to use the skills that I had learned in archival and arrangement and description, particularly from Kathy's class on archival access and use. And I was working on the reminiscence file collection, which is a very large collection full of different memories and recollections people had of Mary Baker Eddy and Christian science during Mary Baker Eddy's lifetime. And so with time, my position changed and my responsibilities grew and I was able to put more skills from Simmons into use, uh, like archives, project management, creating processing plans, and just kind of the knowledge of archival principles uh, that I gained at Simmons to assist with developing and putting into use different policies and procedures. So now I, as you mentioned at the beginning, am the associate archivist, and I kind of have this mentorship and guidance that I gained at Simmons and from my supervisors and coworkers at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. And I can use that knowledge that I have gained in my time in helping other newer employees and interns. Right. So one thing I've noticed is that when I go to an archive, whether it's at the Mary Baker Eddy Library or with a different institution, there are these very helpful things called finding aids. But they also, uh, in my experience, give you a wonderful summary of the history that's associated with the items that are in the various um, folders and boxes to which the finding aids apply. So in your work, what did you have to do to be in a position to create those sort of descriptors and those summaries uh, in order to invite the explorer, the, the inquirer, into an understanding of the context of these materials that they would be looking at? Yes, Jonathan, the finding aid. It's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of the treasure map of archives, I think. All right, that's a great and, way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> in general, it's just a way to make the collection available in a surrogate form. And so that before you see the collection as a whole, you can see it at kind of these different levels. And so with archival arrangement and description, you first have to think about what's the important way that the collection is arranged and kind of the most important concept, I think, in that regard is original order and the idea that the way in which the person who used the collection or created the collection in the first place, how is it that they imagined and used the materials and in what order did they create the collection? Uh, and sometimes you have a great collection order and it's your job to kind of preserve that order because that is as much as part of the context and the history of the collection as the materials themselves. But sometimes there's not really a great order to a collection and you have to not as much impose order, but as Kathy mentioned, some order out of chaos. But really, when I'm making these finding aids, I want to have a great understanding of the collection as a 
collection of material objects, but I also want to have an understanding of the historical context of the collection and the people and the organizations involved in creating it. And those uh, are presented in the uh, historical biographical note. And so I see the process of processing a new collection as kind of a crash course in becoming a mini expert on a topic. You have to learn about that person. Uh, you do research into them. You look into kind of genealogical aspects, biographical materials, what kind of work they were doing. Particularly, you're trying to figure out who was the person in relation to the collection that they made. What were the roles in their lives when they were creating the materials? And you learn all of those things and you present that to the researcher along with an understanding of the collection as it physically exists. That's great. So I want to ask you two things. What are these collections uh, in which you are a, a mini expert? Can you give us an example of this kind of expertise that you've developed? And also, what, what are some of the standout collections for the library at this point? Well, there's been a lot of different collections that I've worked on in my time, but I think one of the more recent ones that I processed, and in this case, that was before we started working from home last year, I had worked on the William and Frederica Miller papers, mm. and they were uh, Christian scientists from Canada who moved to England, and this is in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And so they moved to London and they helped establish and grow Christian science in London. And so I kind of had to learn about their origins, who they were, who their family was, and then kind of what led them to Christian science, what led them to London and the people that they were acquainted with and worked with there. And so I kind of became a mini subject expert on the Miller family. And it was great to learn about them and to learn about the work that they were doing and have that become a part of the collection itself that I contextualized for researchers. I'm interested in getting to know them too. So I'll enjoy learning about them through your work. But if someone were to ask, what are the sort of more significant collections, at least at this point, that the Mary Bacardi Library offers, what would be your answer to that question? Well, obviously, Jonathan, you would start with the major aspect of the historical collections at the Mary Baker Eddy Library, which is the Mary Baker Eddy Collection. Mm -hmm. And that includes correspondence and articles, scrapbooks, diaries, as well as printed material like books and pamphlets that belong to Mary Baker Eddy or to her secretaries in her residences at usually Pleasant View and Chestnut Hill. And so... This collection is, it's very, very large, obviously, and it's the major thing that we have to understand Mrs. Eddy and the work that she did and the vastness of the different aspects of the work that she did every day, and also just understand the growth of Christian science as a movement. And then we have other collections that are part of what we call the library special collections, mm -hmm. one's like the Christian Scientist Association uh, records and the National Christian Scientist Association records, illustrating the rise of Christian science as an organized movement. So in, in terms of the legacy of people who work in the Mary Baker Eddy Library Special Collections, how have you connected with predecessors that have worked in these collections, and how has that informed the work you've done? So, Jonathan, there is a long line of people who have been involved with 
caring for and making available the collections. The Mary Baker Eddy Library was started in 2002. But the historical work of the First Church of Christ Scientists has been continuously ongoing since about uh, 1907. And then it increased a lot in the 1910s, particularly um, after Mrs. Eddy passed on. And her records from her home were transferred to the Mother Church. And then in addition to that, people were requested to send in letters that they had from Mrs. Eddy or reminiscences like the reminiscence file that they had of Mrs. Eddy and the Christian science movement. And those came in an incredible kind of wave. And we have a great number of materials that came from Christian scientists who donated their materials in that regard. And so those kind of records, both the ones that came from the Chestnut Hill home and from people in the field became part of initially the Bureau of History and Records, and then the archives of the Mother Church and the Church History Department. And that kind of culminated now in the Mary Baker Eddy Library. So there's this long tradition of custodianship of historical materials before I joined the staff. And then obviously after the library was established, there were archivists and curators who welcomed me when I joined and trained me. And then there's also this parallel and combined history of maintaining the institutional records that were developed from different departments within the church. And now those are all part of the same kind of department that I'm in, mm-hmm. which is the Office of Records Management and Special Collections. Right. You know, what you're describing makes me think of a visit I took a few years ago um, to Washington, D.C., to the National Archives. Um, Alan Weinstein, who was archivist of the United States at that point, had been an advisor uh, to the Mary Bacardi Library to get it in order, uh, in the best possible shape to open to the public in 2002. And what I remember is there were these wonderful portraits of all the past archivists of the United States. And um, I, I don't think it will happen, but I'd love to see portraits of all the archivists at the Mary Bacardi Library uh, to, to honor that extraordinary uh, history and legacy that, that you describe. Well, Jonathan, we don't have portraits, but I do have notes, and people take great documentation of the work that they do. And it's important to do the documentation so that the people who come after you have an understanding of the decisions that you made and the origin of the materials and then the chain of custody of the materials. So I don't have their portraits, but I have their notes, (laughs) and I have their signatures, and I see their names pop up through the years. And so I get to know them in that kind of way. That's great. So, Kathy, Sarah was talking about how she so appreciates the documentation and notes of her predecessors at the library, but how has the approach towards archival work evolved over the generations? What would be different uh, for an archivist of the 1930s, let's say, and how they approached their work and understanding what was responsible for them with a collection versus someone like Sarah today? I think the biggest change, and and this is just, I think, a normal evolution over time, is our understanding of what's important and what needs to be brought to light and what needs to be highlighted. Um, Obviously, archivists are part of a sociocultural environment, and so what we valued in the 1930s is certainly not what we necessarily value today. We're much, uh, hopefully, much more inclusive and much more interested in 
all kinds of voices. I think in the past it's been very uh, driven by kind of uh, leadership or, or uh, political uh, stature, um, things like that. So I think that an archivist from the 1930s is a product of the 1930s, right? Their mm-hmm. their understanding of of the things that are important, and and that's a really important aspect of archival work, which is a serious responsibility, is that we as human beings, as archivists, are creating representations of materials. So we are making judgments and we're consistently making judgments, hopefully from a professional place, not a personal place, but we're making judgments and those judgments are going to be reflected in the representations that we create. I think that we have a much different perspective on what sort of judgments we need to make now in the 21st century than we did in the early days of the actual beginning of the profession itself. And I should say, I really enjoyed Sarah's story about the long history of custodianship of historical materials. Mm-hmm. Um, what she uh, described happened at the to develop the Mary Baker Eddy Library actually happened across the United States in terms of um, 19th century enthusiasms for historical materials and creating kind of historical collections that weren't necessarily tended by professionals, but tended by enthusiasts. And that long Mm -hmm. custodial history actually feeds into what we have now. And we're very fortunate to have had people who have treasured history and we're focused in on documents and things like that to be able to save them so that we can now treat them as professionals. That's great. So, Kathy, in your, your role as a representative of the profession to others, what, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you encounter about what people think an archivist does or, or what archives are all about? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that archivists are gatekeepers, and in being a gatekeeper, we actually don't want people to enter the gate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just simply not true. I mean, I think we're all motivated by this idea that, along with the responsibilities that we have in order to ensure privacy, and, and that's not a small responsibility. If materials shouldn't be accessed, then it's our responsibility to deny that access But we're all motivated with the sense that the reason why we're keeping these materials is for people to come and use them, come and learn from them. The reason why we put all of this time and energy into this work, aside from transparency and accountability, is also to help people continue to tell the stories that that are held within our records. That, to me, is a big misconception I've heard from historians in particular who maybe have encountered something uh, less friendly uh, environment. There can be some anxiety around archives because they feel a little bit different than uh, libraries. And that's certainly something that we talk about in the archival profession in, in our courses and that sort of thing is helping people welcome them into the archives and, and understand the policies and procedures. We have certain policies and procedures that are around security and also around thinking about the materials and maintaining the integrity of the materials from a preservation and conservation standpoint, that once you explain them to patrons, they understand them, but they don't necessarily know them coming in. So it can feel a little intimidating. There can be some anxiety. It's slightly different than going to your public library in that context. You know, that's one of our jobs, right, is to help people feel comfortable, feel welcome in the archives to use the materials. 
I think another aspect that people kind of misconceive is that we're somehow fuddy duddies and that we <laughs> we don't want to we don't want to work with patrons and we don't want to work with researchers and that's also simply not true. Right. Um, it's it's a joy to engage with researchers. It's a joy to hear what they find in our collections, as Sarah said, so that we can then go back in and see, here's another perspective on this material. So that's really fun. The, and and also, it's really wonderful when a researcher comes to us and says, you know, I, I think you've got this slightly wrong. And this is what I know about it because I have some expertise in this. And to help us make our representations better and more accurate, mm-hmm. um, we're looking for that input. We're not off-put by people telling us to make amendments to our representations so I think that those are sort of the the biggest misconceptions that archives don't want people to come in, and of course we do. That's why we're there. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I, I've very much enjoyed it. I've I have felt a lot of love um, in my research efforts from various archives, including our own. So I people should not be discouraged, at least based on my experience from engaging with archives. So Sarah, I know you're only just at the very early stages of your career, but might I ask, what what have been some of the highlights, greatest joys you've experienced so far uh, as an archivist? I'd like to kind of go back to the beginning of my time at Mary Baker Eddy Library and the first collection that I worked on, The Reminiscence File, because as I've mentioned before, it's an incredibly rich collection Mm. and includes a really diverse amount of recollections about Mrs. Eddy and the growth of Christian science from so many different people, from Christian scientists and those who weren't Christian scientists, who encountered Mrs. Eddy throughout her life and were involved in Christian science in so many different ways. And it really brings a unique and important perspective to Christian science history. It's a personal history and kind of interconnected history rather than an institutional history. And it's been developed, like I mentioned before, since the 1910s on the request of the Christian Science Board of Directors and subsequent departments of the Mother Church that were repositories for historical material. So it's not just a collection that came in at one time. It's Mm -hmm. it's grown over time. And so I worked to digitize the entire collection as part of my initial processing. And it's such a joy when people come into the research room and they can connect with the material in Mm -hmm. that way. Or then we can share the material this past year virtually with people because the the research room hasn't been open. It's so great for them to to learn these new stories that they, they hadn't known existed. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for that work. And thanks really to the entire research and collections team at the library of which you are a part. I've derived so much satisfaction from those treasure maps uh, of which you speak. They have taken me to, to wonderful places in the collections. And Kathy, I'm just curious, in your position, what excites you uh, about the profession and how it's it's developing today? I'm really excited about the developments that we're making in terms of social justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion, Mm. Um, the initiatives that are underway to re-examine our past practices to ensure that we're doing accurate and and appropriate representations in the descriptive work that we do and in uh, the way that we engage with our researchers and how we can outreach to our researchers and to patrons just in general and how we can bring in new researchers. I personally get a real charge out of and really enjoy my engagement with the students who are enthusiastic and excited about becoming archivists um, Mm. and sort of learning about what got them to graduate school, why they decided that this was the path that they wanted to take, and then exposing them to 
the the profession and all of the theoretical frameworks and and seeing the excitement, seeing the lights go on and seeing the new directions that they take the kind of traditional and theoretical frameworks in. So I get to learn from the students as much as I hope they're learning from me. And we all continue to kind of grow together. Well, it's been wonderful welcoming both of you to Seekers and Scholars for this discussion on archival education. It's wonderful to learn more about it. So thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been great to talk about my work. It's been wonderful. And thank you so much, Dr. Kathy Wisser. It's been wonderful to have this time with you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for having me and including me in the conversation. And Sarah, it sounds like you're doing really great work. I'm really, really happy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars on the Education of an Archivist at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. It always gives us a great deal of happiness to give you a bit of insight into the work we do and what makes us passionate about our work at the library. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Our next episode will piggyback in many ways upon this one as we welcome in to our conversation Dr. Jeanette Bastian, an expert on archival theory and very much interested and has explored a great deal on the subject of collective memory, how we interpret and remember our past. And so we'll be looking at that concept in relation to the collections at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you so much for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library, copyright 2021.